0: Welcome to this episode of Portraits and Music. I'm Ross Sievertson. And I'm Clay Couturio, music director and conductor of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Maestro, can we talk a little bit about the upcoming concert on November 7th?
1: Sure. We have four distinct works on this program, and they just happen to all be written in the 20th century. And the first one, uh, we open the concert with uh, a work by the Brazilian composer Villa-Lobos and it's called Bachianas Brasiliaris Number no. 5. Villalobos uh, had two loves of life. One was his home country of Brazil, and the other was music of Johann Sebastian Bach. That's a, two distinct different types of loves, but as we all do, we have our tastes, and he combined that into his music, those two things. And that's why the piece is named... Bachianas Brasiliaris, exactly. Uh, when Violobus was young, he was given uh, some music. It's called the Well-Tempered Clavier of Bach. It's a famous uh, set of preludes and fugues that Bach did in many different keys. And he fell in love with that. He became captivated by it. So uh, his whole style, of became that became part of his style. And the, these compositions he wrote, there are actually nine suites, each called Bachianus Brasiliaris. Nine of them. And the one we're performing is number five. And of the nine, number five is by far the most famous. And each of these Bacchianas Brasileira suites were written for various instruments, sometimes with a a vocalist and sometimes not, mainly with. And this number five does have a a vocal part. It is for soprano. And it was accompanied, the the soprano is accompanied by eight cellos. And I chose this work uh, for a couple reasons, but the main reason is we uh, had a huge loss in the orchestra sure. recently uh, with the passing of our principal cellist, Eugene Osachi. He was a dear, dear friend of mine, colleague, and wonderful, fantastic musician. Just uh, I have immense respect for him, not just as a cellist, but as a person in general. So it was a, a huge loss to everyone. And um, I wanted to do a piece in loving memory of him, and, and I can't think of a better piece than one that involves eight solo Cellos. cello parts. Yeah. And the soprano special too, because um, Mr. Osachi not only was the principal cellist of Richardson Symphony, he also was a professor at uh, the University of North Texas, which is where I work as well. And the soprano happens to be a colleague from Unt. Her name is Molly Fillmore. Just a wonderful, uh, brilliant performer and, and beautiful voice. And um, she was honored to be a part of this of, of this performance. Sure. When I asked her. Um, so this fifth suite, or the fifth Bachianus Brasiliaris, have has two movements. And the first movement is uh, entitled Cantalena, and it's more in song-like form. And the uh, soprano, or Molly, sings in a vocalise style, or the melody is presented almost uh, in wordless. There's no words, per se, at the beginning. She just sings the tune, along with the first of the eight cellos. And uh, there is a brief... uh, moment in the middle where there is there are some words from a poem uh, that talks about uh, the moon rising in the sky. And then the reprise of the vocalise, or the wordless melody, comes back. And this time, it's very distinct because Villalobos uh, asks the soprano to sing with their mouth closed. So it's as if she's humming the song that she sang before. And it really brings the movement to a, a almost haunting, uh, mem- memorable memorable close.
0: Sure. What a great tribute.
1: Yeah. The uh, second movement, the, the, like I said, there's two movements. This is more in the style of northeastern Brazil. Like I said, he had Bach and Brazil on his mind the whole time. And this is actually, uh, the text in this is delivered really, really fast. And uh, the cellos just accompany the, the soloist all along with the restless opening theme. And this is uh, nicknamed Danza, uh, and so um, it just has a whirlwind of musical color that goes all the way around to a brilliant ending. And this so, was written a little bit later. Yeah, the, uh, this, the two movements were written at different times. The first movement in 1938 and the uh, second movement in 1945. He added that second movement. Our next work on the program is by the Spanish composer Rodrigo. It's the Concerto de Arnuez. It's my pleasure to introduce our soloist for the concert. It is Dr. Jalil Refikkaya. Kaya. Jalil, how are you? I am fine. How are you? Doing well. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us uh, for the podcast. Could
0: you tell us a little bit about yourself, your, your background?
2: Sure. Um, I am the coordinator of guitar studies at New Jersey City University. And I started playing guitar when I was six years old. And I come from a professional musician family. And learned my first classical guitar with my father, and um, gave my debut concert in Istanbul uh, at the age of six. Same year I started playing guitar.
0: Wow. In Istanbul.
2: Yes, I was born in Istanbul, and I won many competitions uh, growing up, and um, came to the United States for my masters, and again continued uh, to. Uh, play concerts and competitions, complete my doctorate at, at University of Texas, Austin. That's um, so just a brief um, summary of my background.
1: And you've been involved with several uh, competitions along the way. Can you let us know a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Um, the main ones I would say include, there are many of them, but um, one of them is uh, Joanne Falletta international Guitar uh, guitar concerto competition in Buffalo, New York. Mm-hmm. And we have performed with uh, Maestro Folletta uh, with Buffalo Philharmonic in the finals and, uh, and many times after that. And That was one of them. Um, I have uh, three prizes in GFA, Guitar Foundation of America, as well as many other competitions.
0: And Dr. Kai, isn't it true that guitar is not a typical instrument in the orchestra? Can you Tell us a little bit about your instrument.
2: I would say because of the nature of the instrument, guitar being quiet instrument, that uh, that it was not very popular in terms of playing concerto as a soloist instrument. But um, majority of the guitar players, and we have to use a microphone when we play with the orchestra to amplify the sound. And when we think about violin or piano, they have um, bigger dynamic range compared to the guitar. And therefore, they were chosen as more soloist instruments with the orchestra. Guitar is soloist by its nature, but when it plays with the orchestra, um, it loses some qualities. But luckily, playing Rodrigo, for example, the Aranjuez, um, it's almost like a dialogue. The piece is a dialogue between orchestra and the guitar. And not every concerto is like that either. So. Uh, orchestra is not really taking the quality of the instrument, so guitar is really showing itself in this in this concert. That's what I like about, it. and that's why I think audience liked too. You
1: you mentioned the dynamic range is not as big with a guitar versus violin or piano. So what do you as a guitarist do to make up for that? What are some techniques or to to make it seem like it's sounding louder or, or softer?
2: Well. Um, I think one of them is the Luthiers are working really hard to uh, bring the dynamic level up, like the volume. And um, my guitar, I would consider, is pretty loud. And um, we usually try to exaggerate the dynamics without, of course, being extremes. Because if we play too quiet, then the audience won't hear it. Mm -hmm. If you play too loud, then you push the instrument um, too much that it can buzz or anything. But some people prefer that. I usually generally prefer to exaggerate my dynamic range without uh, pushing too much of the boundaries of the instrument. Sure.
1: And, so. and using a mic with, in the large concert hall with, with the orchestra, is there anything you do have to alter as far, as far as playing guitar when using a mic versus not using a mic?
2: Not really. If the microphone sounds natural and I feel comfortable I just don't change my playing according to the microphone.
1: It's just a a matter of placement of the microphone. So that allows you to do what you normally do, play the the way you normally play.
2: Definitely. As long as it sounds natural.
1: Yes. Yes. There's no problem. So you leave a lot of that to the people working the mics to make it sound natural then.
2: Oh, definitely. It's very important (laughs) because sometimes we decide and, you know, we decide the perfect sound with the microphone and then all of a sudden it changes during the concert. That happened to me a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very discouraging when you hear that. And um, yeah. Well, you let know. us
1: let us know a little bit about the guitar itself, a little bit about the history of the guitar, the background and uh, classical guitar. You know, there's so many different types of guitars and uh, let mm-hmm. the audience know a little bit of background in general and then what guitar specifically that you use.
2: Sure. Well, classical guitar is an old history and ancestors of, um, lute, Vihuela, and all these, um, instruments from Renaissance period. And, uh, which we think came with the Moors to Spain and, uh, possibly Moors, uh, took it, took it from North part of uh, Iran, which was, uh, mainly Turks and Turks played in- instruments a lot, especially first, um, Plucked instruments, bow instruments, uh, in the history were played by Turks as well. Mm-hmm. So we're thinking the evolution came that way. But we, when we look at the history, even the ancient history, uh, in Anatolia, for example, we have some sort of plucked instruments that's similar to guitar. And um, guitar we play today evolved its final um, form in 20th century and Andres Segovia also contributed, great guitarist Andres Segovia contributed its final evolution by encouraging um, Luthiers. Because when we look at it today, guitarists play with the nylon strings. And before it, it was played with the gut strings. Mm-hmm. That even itself increases the volume. Of course, people know guitar today is electric guitar. Yes. And electric guitar has many different types of uh, genres, rock guitar, uh, jazz guitar. Metal, you know, all types of... And so that's why people don't know much classical guitar. And uh, that's one of the reasons, because guitar is very popular in almost every country. It's a popular instrument. Sure. So.
1: Now, using... uh, Playing classical guitar versus, like you said, jazz or pop Mm -hmm. or rock, you know... Many people know of using picks for guitars, or but in classical, it might be a little different. Can you describe that for the audience?
2: Sure. Classical guitar is played with um, right-hand fingernails, and it's a plucked instrument. And we use our forefingers, except the pinky. Um, so that's how the classical guitar is played, compared to the other instruments, that other guitars, other types of guitars that play with the pick.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit what you're going to perform with the Richardson Symphony, the Rodrigo uh, Concerto de Arnavez. Yes. I'm sure you've played this with several orchestras before. Just just tell us what's special about this concerto to you.
2: I think to me and to many other people, why this concerto is very popular and special is that it's very Andalusian. And the way Rodrigo captured the Spanish music in this one. But it's not only; it doesn't only include traditional Spanish music, but also courtly Spanish music. So when we look at the first movement, it's like a dialogue, and uh, it derives from Spanish dances. But the second movement is more, I would say, melancholic and has a lot of uh, gypsy Spanish music qualities. When we look at the third movement, it's more like a courtly dance, courtly Spanish dance. Um, because of the dramatic and rhythmic nature of the concerto, I think is very popular.
1: Sure, of course, Rodrigo yeah. studied with Dukas. You know, a lot of uh, Spanish yeah. composers would have gone to France to study,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, which was just common at the time, especially when Rod- Rodrigo lived. And right. um, by studying in France, they, a lot of the colors and things that the French composers at the time that comes out in Rodrigo's music as well.
2: Oh, definitely.
1: And, definitely. Um, yeah, you mentioned the three different m- movements and the uh, the rhythmic element to things. Uh, yeah. But the adagio, I think there's something special about that. It's truly the heart of the, contr- of the concerto. Oh, definitely. And yeah. um, would it, does it have any type of flamenco strains to it or anything like that?
2: Definitely. The improvisation part of it is definitely... Um, derives from flamenco and, and what, uh, in, I'm yeah.
1: sorry to interrupt just what is that no. w- describe what that is flamenco to, to the audience
2: so flamenco music is a traditional Spanish music uh, folkloric music that also derives from uh, Moorish music so a lot of it came from the Moor, Moorish um, dances or scales that is transformed in the European Spanish music that blended with it. So that's why people are drawn to it, that, that aspect of it. And most of the time, uh, Spanish music, although it's being very rhythmic, sometimes very improvisatory. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of improvisation in it. That again, derives from uh, the Moorish music and Rodrigo uses this a lot. Although it's in time, the second movement, it's still very free. Especially with, is within
1: strict. beats, especially. The, the, the timing is strict, but the, the freedom within the beats, of course.
2: Definitely. And to me, music don't have a nationality. So when people hear something expressive, like the second movement of Aranjuez, uh, people like it. Because music don't have a nationality. You cannot say, yes, we say Spanish, but this is, this is an international language that everybody understands. Because it's a form of expression and it's so easy to remember because it's written so well that's why I think people like it
1: there's a large English horn solo in that second movement uh, Yes. and then after the English horn plays does that influence you in your interpretation at all or do you have an idea and you just the English horn has their idea or how how do you work with the uh, the other soloists in this movement
2: i don't try to mimic or I would say it influences me, but um, I separate it usually. I don't really mm-hmm. uh, think that I have to match my sound or they have to match match my sound mm-hmm. or my interpretation necessarily. I think it's a great contrast if, even if it's different a little bit
1: Exactly, different. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, you know, something – because this is what made Rodrigo famous, this particular piece. And mm-hmm. um, he's, he wrote many other things. This is probably the most famous right. – um, what's what's great about it, I think, is it, it this second movement in particular became so famous that other people wanted to record it. I mean, we talk mm-hmm. about guitar being classical and going into mm-hmm. jazz or to uh, rock mm-hmm. or things. This particular movement was, of course, taken and recorded for trumpet and flugelhorn by Miles Davis, the famous uh, mm-hmm. trumpeter, and mm-hmm. that that speaks volumes, I think, for how. What what great music is and what it can do and 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 oh, definitely. go beyond and above and beyond different genres
2: of music. Definitely, I mean, good good written music to me that you can adapt to anything almost. Like playing Bach, for example. Yes. I mean, when you transcribe Bach to anything, when you regard, I mean, regardless which instrument you play with. For example, I play uh, some of the harpsichord pieces on guitar, some of the lute pieces on guitar, violin pieces. They all match. Cello suites, you know. And that
1: would have been because common – oh, go ahead. Sorry.
2: No, no. I was saying it's just written so well. That's why.
1: And that would have been common during Bach's time. Of course, Bach wrote uh, concertos for harpsichord that would have been for other mm-hmm. instruments. He he did different versions of the same piece. Definitely.
2: definitely um, yeah.
1: And interestingly, we were talking about this uh, Arnwes being played by Miles Davis – Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an improvisatory quality to it that also would have been during the Baroque times that they would have done or been expected to do. So all these things are intertwined, I think.
2: Definitely. Guitar pieces have a lot of these. Uh, Besides Rodrigo, there are some other composers that they're famous with a couple of their pieces. I mean, they wrote a bunch of pieces, but maybe two or three of their pieces are the most famous ones.
1: You know, guitar is, is similar to the piano in the idea that it can be totally a solo instrument itself, or mm. it can be used to collaborate with, uh, other instruments, whether the other instruments are solo, you know, or what type of chamber music it's, it's, it can be used in many different ways. How do you prepare for a solo piece versus a, a chamber piece, a piece, or whether you're accompanimental or, or whatever, are there different aspects to your playing, uh, from solo and other genres?
2: Definitely. I mainly, I have to say that I mainly play solo. Sure. But when I, when I play chamber, chamber music, uh, I'm trying to get out of my, you know, soloist ideas. What I'm saying by that is I'm trying to match other people too. So the timing is very important with people. And people's ideas are very important. So we cannot be really, Selfish in that sense, mm-hmm. because we do it together, we do the music together and, um, we cannot really dictate what we want. um, that's not a good chamber music <laughs> mentality, I would say. So that's why I prepared, I'm trying to listen more to them when they play. And, um, when I'm soloist, I mean, I don't really, I'm really focusing on myself. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well but with the orchestra, too, orchestra, too, I'm not being too free. You know, some soloists, you know, when they play concerto, they go too free that, you know, orchestra gets confused, conductor gets confused. That happens a lot. Uh, I'm not doing that either with the orchestra because still I'm playing with people that I have to consider. You know?
1: Exactly.
2: Uh, see, I don't want anything to go wrong, you know.
1: There's a difference between solo performing by yourself and solo Definitely. performing with anybody else and uh,
2: definitely
1: and the way you play a piece f- from a soloistic standpoint in front of an orchestra is different than playing a solo box suite or something like that of course
2: definitely
1: definitely well yeah. uh, Jaleel we, I personally really look forward to working with you uh, on this concerto thank and I know the audience will really enjoy um, uh, the, the work and, and the performance so thank you so much for your time
2: thank you I look forward to it thank you thank you so much
1: the next work on the program is by the French composer Maurice Ravel, and it's called Le Tambo de Couperin. And it's a work that was originally written for piano solo uh, with six movements. And then he was asked later to orchestrate it, make it for orchestra, and he chose four of the six movements. And it's uh, called Le Tambo de Couperin, tombo in French uh, r- literally means tomb. Right. tomb of Couperon. And he doesn't mean that person. Couperon was a uh, famous uh, composer from uh, the 18th century. And what this really means is he's adapting the style and the music, like the melodic line of Couperon, of into his realm, into Ravel's world of the 20th century. So 20th century music of, uh, evocative of the 18th century style. Right. And the little bit about the background of this work, uh, Ravel served in World War One. He almost didn't get to because he was uh, too short, and uh, for various reasons. But he finally did get to serve, and he uh, drove an ambulance. And he only got to do that for so long. But what he saw, as many people do in wars, horrific, and he lost friends. And so each of these movements were written for a particular. Uh, loss of a friend. And um, the uh, four movements he chose are all or each distinct in the orchestration. That and he was, was a little late. Uh, he was a little older at 39 enlisting in the army. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. There were, that was another reason that it was difficult for him to, to enlist. Uh, the four movements, the first is called Prelude. And it really has a perpetual motion of 16th notes grouped into triplets. And it's a famous oboe solo. Actually, it's a famous excerpt for oboists when uh, they're auditioning. And our uh, principal oboist, Woody, will do a wonderful job on on this solo. The second movement is uh, a, for Lana, and it is a... Um, Type of Venetian sailor's dance that's in six eight one two three four five six one 2 3 1-2-3-4-5-6-dum-ba-bom-bee, ba da dum bee ba bum bee, bee So uh, it will sound a little bit sailor-like, with, uh, but also maintains a jolly, sparkling uh, mood to it. So when I say these are dedicated to fallen soldiers, that doesn't mean anything about everything being dark. A lot of this is sure. lush and beautiful, and uh, perhaps what uh, Ravel thought of these people an and, appropriate tribute to them. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. And the third movement is a minuet. Minuet is familiar to most people who go to orchestra concerts because that's usually the third movement of a, of a symphony. And uh, it's in three time, three, four time. And uh, the Baroque minuet, it has a certain mood of stateliness to it, uh, high end. And there happens to be uh, another big oboe solo. So this is big (laughs) for the oboe, uh, this particular piece. And uh, in the middle, there are some colored touches of melancholy to it, uh, but overall nice and stately as a minuet usually is. And the last movement is called a rigadon, And that is a 17th century dance from Provence. And uh, this dance is usually in a four-duple meter and... Uh, there's hopping steps uh, to it. It, becomes, uh, it became very popular in the, in the French courts. Uh, it has a whirlwind of an end. Uh, you'll hear little bits of trumpet brilliance in, in this movement. And uh, I know the orchestra is going to love performing it. So the name Rigodon comes from? Uh, it's attributed to an inventor, Rigaud. And it was a French, he was a French dancing uh, master from Marseille. And the last work on our program is by the Russian composer Igor Stravinsky, and it's his suite number two for small orchestra. He, he wrote two suites, and um, it actually has a World War I tie-in as well because he, Stravinsky was um, in Switzerland during and just after World War I because of uh, living in political exile. And while he was there, he was wanting to compose some light-hearted, charming little works for his children to play. Sure. And so these were orig- These were written for four-hand piano. That means two players, uh, you know, on sitting together piano. on one piano. Right. Uh, a primo part and a second part. So the primo part would play the upper half of the piano, and the second on the lower half. And he wrote a. Two different sets of pieces. One is called Three Easy Pieces, which is from 1915, and a second one called Five Easy Pieces from 1917. And his um, older children would play with the younger siblings, and the younger ones would play uh, um, the simple part. There was a more simple part, and the, uh, the older players would play more, uh, I would call it early intermediate parts. They were all uh, with a little more greater technical demands to it. Sure. And what, after that, Stravinsky recognized that these melodies uh, could be developed further and and added uh, with texture and uh, orchestral color to it. Uh, so he decided to make two suites. And the second suite involves uh, four of the movements from these two earlier pieces, the three easy pieces and the five easy pieces. And um, the first movement is called March. Like I said, there are four movements. The right. first movement is, is a March. And it has uh, a really rhythmical, simple, melodic line in the upper part, the primo part, that's played by the winds. And the um, colors are rich in harmonic content and... Uh, also shows a, a character of Stravinsky's neoclassical style, that means uh, s- in a somewhat similar idea of Ravel, but not quite the same. Of taking works of a classical style from the classical era in a 20th century context. So does it have that anachronistic sort of feel to uh, it? Right? A little bit, yes. So the march of 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 the. 19th or 18th century, but with harmonic structure of that Stravinsky would use of his own in the 20th century. Okay. And then the second movement is a waltz, and it's interesting because it only features the woodwinds. The strings do not play, the piano and percussion that are involved uh, do not play here. It's really, uh, first part of the waltz is a uh, chamber music between the solo clarinet and the flute and piccolo. And I would say more than any of the other movements, this uh, is like a delicate dance, and it captures the intimacy of uh, the original duets in in the piano parts. And it has a really childlike quality to it. Sure. And the third movement is a polka, and it's very boisterous and energetic. And it has a big bombastic introduction with the percussion. And then the trumpet and clarinet engage in a duet pretty spirited. And Stravinsky adds a lot of uh, effects, that, uh, like glissando, which is sliding around in scales and trills and these wide interval grace notes, ba-dum, ba-dum, like a donkey almost. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that contributes to the uh, mischievous aspect of, of the movement. And the last movement uh, the, is a gallop. And this is really the longest of the sh- of these short little arrangements. In fact, everything's short about this piece. The entire work is only 7 minutes. So oh. we're getting we're getting a in four movements. So if you think about it, in 7 minutes, some of them are a minute and a half long, right? It, right. Yeah. Uh, and compared to the rest of the program, the the Lobos is about 11-12 minutes, the Concerto 21 minutes, and the Ravel of the du Couperon, 17-18 minutes. So to end with a short little seven-minute movement, but there's so much music in seven minutes, you really have to listen to all that's going on. And a lot of variety. A lot of variety in short, in a short amount of time. Um, this gallop is really a burlesque character. Now, what do you mean by gallop? It's just a type of, of dance. It's a fast dance uh, the, in two. And uh, it's it was the predecessor to the... Uh, to the can-can. You know what the can-can yes, is. Yes, right. of course. So it's in that style. in that, And um, it's in a ternary form, which means three sections, an A section, a B section, and going back to an A section. And uh, just of the four, it's it's the wildest and has a big flourish to the end, especially in the percussion. So pay attention to the percussion at the end of this of the concert.
0: So we have executive director of the RSO, Laurie Garvey, with us. Laurie, can you tell us what uh, events are coming up after the November 7th concert?
3: Absolutely, Ross. The next event we have coming up is the RSO Beaujolais Bash. This will be the third year for our Beaujolais Bash, but this year it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a hybrid event. Um, We're encouraging patrons to have very small gatherings, groups of four, at home. And invitations are going out soon, and the details will also be on our website Basically, we're encouraging patrons to purchase a Beaujolais Bash basket, and it will be an at-home party for four, and each basket will include three bottles of wine, wine glasses, coasters, markers, appetizers, dessert, and several special surprises, and they will pick up their basket from the Wine Authority who is our uh, wonderful wine sponsor. And then we're also partnering with several restaurants in the community and encouraging the attendees to purchase dinner ahead of time to accompany the wine tasting. And the restaurants we're working with are Lockwood Distilling Company, Panada's Mexican Restaurant, The 5th. So all that information, as I said, is on our website. And the event is on November 21st. It's on a Saturday evening. And um, what makes it a hybrid event is that uh, we're going to have a short program starting at 8 p.m. that evening. And Kyle Kepner, who is the owner of the Wine Authority and also a sommelier, is going to be leading a wine tasting with... Um, Uh, Brandon Godocci, his business partner, and also Clay Caturio, our conductor. Wow. So they'll be sharing insights into the wine and Maestro Caturio will also be providing some suggestions on what classical music pairs best with these wines. So we hope everyone can join us. It's going to be a lot of fun.
0: Sounds like a great event.
3: We're also very grateful to our top sponsor for that event, Methodist Richardson Medical Center is our platinum sponsor so we're very grateful to them for their support and dedication
0: i want to remind everyone that tickets are available at the eisman center ticket office and on their website at eismancenter.com maestro thank you it's always great to chat with you and thank you our listeners for tuning in to portraits and music with maestro clay Catorio. i'm your producer and co-host ross sievertson Remember, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes downloaded to you automatically. Reviews and ratings are always appreciated, and it helps us to provide you with more great inside conversations from the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Until next time.